Well, if you would, again, uh, take out your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 38. And we will be reading uh, the entirety of that chapter. Genesis chapter 38, starting in verse 1. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adolamite, whose name was Hurrah. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was at Chesbon when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her. And raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So he, whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground. So as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah, to his sheep shears, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of Anim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me? that you may come into me. He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge, until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her, and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Dulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cold prostitute who was at Anim on the roadside? And they said, No cold prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cold prostitute has been there. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent him a young goat, sent this, sent this young goat, and, did not, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, 
Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But he drew back his hand. Behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this reading of your word. We pray now, God, that you would give uh, to us that we may have careful attention to the preaching of your word. We ask, O God, that you would be with this, your servant. Uh, that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart may be uh, what is pleasing before you, that we would understand this truth and apply it into our lives. We pray, God, that we may get a glimpse as well of our Savior Jesus. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. In uh, Revelation chapter 21 and verse 12, it is recorded that the names of the twelve sons of Israel are put on the twelve gates in heavenly Jerusalem. It's amazing to consider that Judah's name is found written on one of those gates in light of the great sin we see recorded in the passage before us. And yet... This is another wonderful demonstration of God's incredibly amazing grace. What is before us is admittedly a very difficult and in some respects a bizarre account of the preservation of the people of God and of the covenant seed. As we have seen over and over again, God's hand of providence though is at work. Ruling and overruling in matters, accomplishing God's perfect will, even using wicked men to accomplish His will. Judah, by all accounts, was failing as a covenant son. First of all, he had married outside of the covenant family. He had married into the unbelieving and wicked people of Canaan. And living among the Canaanites, Judah had begun to act like the Canaanites and sought influence among their royal family, the Adullamites. In addition, his sons also acted wickedly. And after the first two die for their wickedness, Judah then refuses to care for his daughter-in-law and give her to his youngest, contrary to the law of leveret marriage. 
Further, Judah was prone himself to sexual immorality. Like the people he had taken up residence with. And so we see Judah apparently indulging in with prostitutes. And yet God will transform Judah. Judah's name will be on the gate. From Judah will come the royal line of David and of Christ. God is faithful to His covenant promises and to His decree of salvation, even when the acts of men seem to threaten it. God's promises really are never in danger. They're never in danger from the works and doings of the world. God, as was promised from the very beginning in the garden, was rescuing sinners. He was rescuing the promised seed of the woman, the Messiah, who would come and crush the serpent's head. And so as we come to Genesis 38, a few few things orient us. We'll notice that there is a change in focus, at least for a moment. The focus has moved temporarily from the story of Joseph, which takes up most of the rest of Genesis. But the the focus is not Joseph now, but uh, the focus now is on Judah. The spotlight, as it were, is on Judah. In, in both of these, we see the account or the character of both of these men in this account. In fact, the scene provides something of a contrast. A contrast between the character of Joseph and the character of Judah. Judah, who in a sense stands as a representative for the other sons of Jacob. Now, Judah has risen to be the leader among his brothers. But unlike Joseph, who sought to live righteously, and we'll see much more of this as in chapters ahead, when we see uh, as Joseph uh, you know, has to run, uh, runs away from sin, runs away from uh, Potiphar's wife. Here we see Judah almost running towards sin, turning towards sin. And so we see the character of both men in these accounts. We see a contrast. We see how Judah is stepping away from faithfulness to God. And yet God will rescue him and bring him back. Judah's intermarriage with the Canaanites also exposes the family to great threats. The Canaanites are in a position now to exert some influence on the covenant family. And perhaps this is why ultimately God has to remove the Israelites from Canaan and send them temporarily at least to Egypt. The very thing that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had uh, most uh, dreaded was that their sons would marry in among the Canaanites. And so that is now what is happening. So we begin our study in our, our, here in, in verse 1, and our, our text starts with a connection to the events which had occurred before. This was about the time after Joseph had been sold into slavery in Egypt. So Judah has intermarried now with the Canaanites. He's taken up a Canaanite wife. And in some respects, we should interpret this scene in light of the previous incident. While the character of Ju- Joseph is righteous... <coughs> Right? We, see, we see that his, his actions, Judah is portrayed as being unrighteous. 
Uh, Both sons, Joseph and Judah, have now left their father's house, but each have done so under very different circumstances, circumstances in which Judah had a hand in both of. After all, it was Judah's idea to profit from the sale of Joseph rather than to kill him. It It was his idea to do that. And so it was not long after this that we we read here that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite. So Judah has left his family and he's inclined himself toward a Canaanite, more specifically of the Adulamite family, a man named Hirah. Now, Adula was a royal household among the Canaanites. And this, this fellow, Hura, was now his new best friend. This was his, his confidant. Perhaps Judah was seeking influence among the Canaanite people. He was, after all, the new leader in his family. And so what has become obvious is that the family of Jacob now featured a number of fractures. And so, again, in this account, Judah and Joseph are contrasted in some respects. Additionally, we'll see what happens when members of the family of God turn off the path of righteousness and go into the practices of the world. They become like them. Judah has has become like the people that he was with. Judah needed to be rescued out of this. And so Judah, living among the Canaanites... We read that he saw a daughter of a certain Canaanite named Shua, and he took her to be his wife. Now the language used here is saw, took, and went in. This indicates marriage, but also seems to insinuate some lust. So here, again, this is the very thing that Abraham and Isaac had most feared. This was one of the reasons that Esau had been rejected. And that is the intermarriage with the Canaanite people. Now the problem is not the ethnic background of the Canaanites. The problem is of their wickedness, their unbelief. They were not following God. They were, well, they were just very wicked. And so now you have Judah. You have the leader of the, the, the Israelites. And he is now married into this ungodly people. And, and Simeon will also do the same. And again, this is, this is probably one of the reasons why God has to send them to Egypt. To protect Israel from even themselves. And so now the family of Judah, he begins to have... Sons, and in fact, it seems very hopeful for he has three sons. First, there's Ur, whose name means watchful, and then there's Onan, whose name means strength, and then finally, Shelah, whose name means drawn out. Now, in the genealogies of chapter 46 and also Numbers 26, Ur and Onan are not listed as having offspring because they didn't. The only thing it says about them is that they died in the land of Canaan. The Shelah, through, though, is the father uh, of the clan of the Shelanites. And one commentator, speaking about Ur, apparently his name in Hebrew, spelled backwards, is evil. It actually means evil. Whether that's incidental or not, who knows, but that's an interesting bit of information anyway. 
uh, what we do know about him, his character is he was evil. So much, in fact, that God puts him to death. And so, in accordance with the custom of arranged marriages, Judah acquired a wife for his firstborn son, Ur. Her name was Tamar. Her name, incidentally, means date palm. Now, now Tamar, you'll notice, Tamar's ethnicity is not disclosed to us. But we, may, we might presume, we might presume that she was a Canaanite woman, since no Israelite connection is given. Now, we don't know for sure. Now, at the same time, though, the silence of the text, along with Judah's wife being identified as a Canaanite, could indicate that she was Israelite. The fact is, we just don't know what her ethnic background is. If she was a Canaanite, it seems that matters are turning from bad to worse, as not only has Judah taken on a Canaanite wife, but now he's arranging for his sons for them to marry a Canaanite woman. Verse 7. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Now, the, the exact nature of Ur's wickedness is not stated for us. We don't, we don't know what he did, but whatever it is, it must have been very, very grave. This is, in fact, the first instance recorded in Scripture of the Lord himself putting someone to death. Then Judah told his second son that he was to take her, Tamar, to be his wife and to fulfill the custom of leveret marriage. Now this is if an older brother dies then, and then there's an unmarried brother in the household, then that brother was to take his older brother's wife to be his wife and the firstborn son would be the dead brother's heir. So this is the, the custom of leveret marriage. Now Deuteronomy chapter 25 provides the codification of this law. And that, that would apply in this case here. Now, to our modern sensibilities, this seems, well, this seems very strange, doesn't it? In fact, um, some of the younger folks are probably thinking like, oh, I hope that my, you know, I hope my older brother doesn't die. I don't want to have to take on his wife, right? I mean... We don't understand this, right? This is, this is sort of outside of our experience. This is not the sort of thing that we do. The reason, of course, for it, though, is that it ensured that the deceased brother has an heir and that there were generations which would come after. It also would ensure that the widow was cared for. And so it's important for the family line to keep going. But Onan, knowing that Tamar would, would bear, that any son that Tamar bore, the firstborn, would not be considered his offsprings, his offspring, when he had relations with her as his wife, he did everything he could to ensure that she would not get pregnant. And so he was depriving his brother of an offspring. He knew that if he produced an heir for his brother, he knew that he would lose his status as the heir. And so it seems again that there is a battle for supremacy. This, this battle for supremacy, which has been evident in Jacob's household for decades at this point, is now playing out in Judah's household. Now, Onan's action was wicked in the sight of God, and so the Lord also put him to death. 
And so the dysfunction of Judah's household has now resulted in the Lord putting two out of his three sons to death because of their wickedness. What a great household, huh? And so having now seen two sons die who had been married to Tamar, Judah, well, I mean, Judah becomes concerned. I think if you were in Judah's place, you might be concerned too. Wow, this woman marries two of my three sons and they both end up dead. Hmm. Well, this is what he's thinking. He's not, he, he's not interested in seeing a third son die. And so he tells his daughter-in-law, verse 11, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Judah is seeking to protect his last surviving son by sending Tamar away from the household. Now, of course, he assumes that the problem is with Tamar. Perhaps he thinks she's a cursed woman. She brings death to her husbands. So I better get her away from my last son or he'll end up dead too. But Judah, Judah is acting wickedly here. As a leader of the household, he should have protected and cared for this defenseless widow. Not put her out. Instead, he was walking in fear. He was not trusting in the Lord. So he sends Tamar back to her father's house, shirking his responsibility toward her, denying her her right to well-being, and shifting the problem onto somebody else. Judah should have protected her, but instead, his actions put her in jeopardy. Now, this is no small matter in the ancient world, nor would it be a small matter as we were praying earlier, you know, about Karamoja. This is not a small matter for a widow. But Tamar has no, now no husband. She has no potential heir to care for her. She is now sent out of the house with nothing. This is another reason, by the way, that the custom of leveret marriage was so important in that society. Widows need to be cared for. Now, in our day, in our day, you know, men and women in our culture, you know, you can get a job. You don't depend on your children to care for you in your old age, at least not too much. But in that day, even a young widow might be totally destitute. She would be totally unable to care for herself. So nevertheless, despite what Judah should have done, Tamar is sent away, and thus she was to remain in her father's house. Now we read in in verse 12 that many days pass, and then Judah's wife dies. Now we don't know how long this was. Um, Some think perhaps as much as 20 years have now gone by. But whatever the length of time, it was enough that Shelah has grown up and she, he could, that, that Tamar could be given to him in marriage. But, but that hasn't happened. Judah hasn't given uh, Tamar to Shelah. And so the situation has now presented itself, which would allow Tamar to remedy the situation for herself now that Judah's wife was dead. It says when Judah was comforted, that is to say that after the time of mourning had passed, 
he returned to his normal activities and so went up to Timnah to his sheep shears along with his friend Hira the Adolamite. Now, you want to notice that Judah seems to be comforted rather quickly. Now, keep in mind, Tamar is still wearing mourning clothes. She is still required to be in mourning for her husband. Judah is over it and going on with his life. Now, the sheep, the shearing of sheep, this was a time of celebration. And so Tamar hears that Judah has gone up to shear the sheep. She knew this was an opportunity to play on Judah's vice. This was his besetting sin. And this may have been well known. Everybody may have known about what Judah... You know, Judah, he liked to play a little on the side. But she knew that she could use this to redress the wrong which had been done against her. The family must be built up. She needed to be protected. And so Tamar takes matters into her own hands. And so verse 14 says that she removes her widow's garments. Again, she's been wearing these for uh, maybe as much as 20 years. She's taken off, takes off her mourning clothes. These were distinctive in appearance. She takes them off and she covers herself with a veil. She wrapped, wrapping herself up, she then sat at the entrance of Anaim. So Tamar is incognito. She is disguised as a prostitute. And her hope was that Judah would pass by, mistake her for a prostitute, lust after her, and this is exactly what happens. She not only did this, because Judah was supposed to have given her to his son, but also so that she could produce an heir. Desperate times, I suppose, call for desperate measures. Now again, this all strikes our modern sensibilities as more than a little odd. You know, again, this is a this is sort of a bizarre uh, situation, and you think I don't really know how to feel about this. Well, one commentator uh, said this about it: "Quote her demand that her father-in-law father a child by her, since he refused to give her his son, is probably consistent with accepted ethical practices at her time." Both Hittite and Middle Assyrian law legislated that if a married man died and his brother also died, then his father shall take her. There shall be no punishment. End quote. So Tamar perhaps was only doing what she believed was just by the law of that time and place. Now it's also worth noting that the Mosaic law does not go quite that far. That said, her actions are not necessarily inconsistent with Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5, which says this, if, brothers, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. And so, what was she to do? What was Tamar to do? Shelah had grown up. He is of marriageable age. And yet Judah has wickedly not given her to him in marriage. What was she to do? She and really Judah needed an heir. And this was the only course left to her. 
but one which will have consequence for all of us. Happily, consequence for all of us. And so when the, do- when the day came, Judah came along, and he did see her, and he did think that she was a prostitute, and he does turn to her at the roadside. Now it's clear that Judah does not know that this is his daughter-in-law. But what Judah does not know has great significance in God's providence. The ignorance of Judah, of the reason for his son's death, and of the woman before him, sits in contrast, though, to the wisdom of Joseph. You know, the way that you can kind of compare and contrast. Where Joseph runs from immorality, and again, we see this more of this with the, the situation with Potiphar's wife, Judah turns into it. Judah was being led not by what is righteous, according to the Lord. Judah was being led by his own lust. Nevertheless, the Lord will use the sin of Judah to accomplish his will. And so verse 16, he says, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. Again, notice the narrator takes great pains to explain that Judah is completely unaware that he is committing incest with his daughter-in-law. Thus, the children which, which would be born to her would not be illegitimate, but legitimate. Nevertheless, Judah is a profane fornicator. This is a great sin on Judah's part. So Tamar responds, What will you give me? Well, for her part, Tamar's goal is not profit. She's not really a prostitute. This is not her purpose. Her goal was to further the family line to protect herself. And so she asks for something. Now, Judah, of course, offers a young goat. Hey, I'll send a a goat to you. But Tamar says, no, no, I need a pledge. And so she asks, verse 18, asks for his signet and cord and staff. Now, the signet and cord is a small cylinder... A seal, probably made of stone or metal. This would have been worn on a cord around the neck. On it would have been his insignia. Uh, So this was a sign of a prominent man. Judah's a prominent man. And when it was rolled in clay or wax, it would make an impression which would identify the owner and it would legitimize whatever is being sent. And the staff, this this is a symbol of authority. And it would have also had his mark of ownership on it. And so by taking these things, Tamar would be able to prove that the child, or as the case will be, the children born of her are from Judah. It's also fitting that these items, the the proof of legitimacy and the proof of authority are used. And so Judah agrees to give his signet cord and staff. Now, this is actually quite astonishing. You think about it. I mean, these are really important items, and he's going to just give them to what he thinks is a prostitute. Nevertheless, this is what, exactly what he does. And he goes into her, and in another example of God's providence, she becomes pregnant by him. God has superintended all that takes place here, using even the sinful deeds of men to accomplish his will. 
And so Tamar, having accomplished her mission without being detected, rose, went out from that place. She took off her disguise. She put back on her garments of mourning. And only the pregnancy of these twins, which will become obvious in three months, would reveal the truth. Now, Judah does uh, send a young goat to the woman um, via his friend in order to take back his pledge. Now, apparently, he's too ashamed to return there himself. He has to send his, his buddy there to bring the payment. And ironically, Judah is willing to honor his promise to a prostitute, even though he won't honor the promise to his own daughter-in-law. But when the Adulamite went to the place, they didn't find her. And so he asked the men there, where is the cult, where's the cult prostitute? At the roadside. Now, one thing to know, this is a different word than what Judah had used. What was used earlier was the word just prostitute. Now, this is actually sort of a, a kinder word. Now, Judah's Canaanite friend elevated the woman's social status from a common whore to a shrine prostitute. This actually serves to illustrate another of the dangers of intermarriage with the Canaanites as they gave great honor to cult prostitutes. As it was, though, the men of the place did not know what he was talking about. We don't know anything about this woman. There's been no one here like that. And so he returned to Judah, gave him the news. And Judah replies, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. Again, you see something of what's important to Judah at this point. He's afraid of being ridiculed. For having unwittingly lost his most valuable possessions to a prostitute. He was more worried about his reputation than having done what was right. And since an attempt had been made to meet his obligation, he was satisfied. Let her keep those things. Judah likely was ready to put the whole embarrassing episode behind him, but of course we know this was not to be the end of it. So after three months had passed, Tamar's pregnancy, again she has twins, becomes obvious to all. And so word comes back, verse 24, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. So news has passed to Judah concerning Tamar because she has marital obligations to his family. Remember, she actually belongs in his household. This is his daughter-in-law. He should have been caring for her. This is why he now hears about it. Hey, she's been immoral. She's supposed to be the supposed to have been given to his youngest son, although Judah has not kept his part of the obligation, nor has he given her a release to marry someone else. This is an option that's provided for in Deuteronomy chapter 25. So Tamar is just stuck. Judah has done give, given her no options. And so now he gets word of her immorality. And so Judah says this, bring her out and let her be burned. Now this is, this, is the, this is the penalty required for a promiscuous daughter. She was to be brought out to the city gate and she was to be executed by the city elders. Although among Israel this would be, uh, by burning that would be rare. Normally it would have been stoning. But the point is, execution now notice that Judah is quick to condemn his daughter-in-law for a crime that he himself is guilty of also. Let her burn, he says. Well, what about you, Judah? 
However, at the critical moment, as she is being brought out to be executed, Tamar sends word to Judah, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. What did she have? Well, she produces the signet, the the cord, and the staff. Identify these! Notice that even as her life is at stake, she does not make any direct accusations against Judah. She just says... Whose are these? It's, it's whoever these belong to, that's why I'm pregnant. The language used here of identifying the objects is the same that was used in Joseph's robe to Jacob. And so Joseph, or Judah rather, immediately sees the items. He recognizes them as being his. And so his response is this. Verse 26, she is more righteous than I. Since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. So Judah recognizes the items, and Judah recognizes his own guilt. Now, his comments don't necessarily mean that he approved of her actions, but he does acknowledge that he had failed to do what was required by the custom of leveret marriage. He had failed to care for his daughter in law. He tried to get around the custom by not giving her his son and thus not allowing the line to grow. Now this will turn out to be critical, of course. Because from this line, from Tamar and Judah, comes the Messiah. Tamar will become something of a heroine in Israel. You see this in Ruth chapter 4, for example. Because she was willing to risk everything. She was willing to risk her life for the advancement of the covenant family. And so faced with his own moral failures on multiple levels, Judah confesses his own unrighteousness. Literally, actually, he says this. She is righteous, not I. And now, Judah's true character begins to emerge as he confesses his sin. Just as Jacob had become a changed man, Judah becomes a changed man. He was a man who had been humbled. He had been humbled by his own daughter-in-law. Ultimately, he had been humbled, though, by God. The text also says that he didn't know her again, for to do so would make him guilty of incest. This was still his daughter-in-law. But no longer did he know her as wife. But when the t- so then when the time came for her to give birth, uh, we read that she had twins. Now Tamar having twins reminds us of the birth of Jacob and Esau. And similarly, the younger supplants the older. Now the narrative implies already that Judah will be the successor to his father in the family leadership, as the birth order of the twins matters in this way. The son's birth convey much of the same theme of rivalry, which we have seen marked the chosen line. As for the birth, the text tells us that when she was in labor, one put out his hand and the midwife tied a scarlet thread around his hand, saying, this one came out first. But then he withdrew that hand and his brother came out instead. And so that brother was called Perez, which means breach or to break out. 
This is the only one whose name is explained. Is the midwife saying, what a breach you have made for yourself. You have, you have broken out. And then the brother comes out with a scarlet thread. He will be called Zerah, which means dawning. Well, he, was, he was to be the head of the Judite clan. But the focus is actually on Perez, who, will, who has broken out as the royal line, the royal seed, just as Tamar had broken out from under Judah's unrighteous binding of her and of the family line. Well, the course of this tenth told off of Genesis, we've seen Joseph, and now we've seen Judah emerge as the covenant family leaders. Joseph will take the primary place. Judah will take a secondary role. But both men point us to Christ. And Judah, with the birth of the twins, is marked out as the royal line. Judah had sought to make his own royal place. He had sought influence with the royal clan of the Canaanites. His importance is seen in the items that he, he carried. These items that he gave to Tamar. But Judah is a great sinner. And God humbles him. His error in not seeking to properly build his, the line. Of not protecting his daughter-in-law. All of these sins were made known along with the sin of fornication. The fact that God redeemed such great sinners as this, beloved congregation, ought to be a great encouragement to you. You think, how am I encouraged by the sin of Judah? Well, you ought to be encouraged because God redeems sinners, even sinners like Judah, even great sinners like you, like me. Just as the character of Jacob in Judah are transformed as they repent, as they walk by faith. You and I have to repent and walk by faith as well, trusting in Christ. God transforms sinners such as you in me. No one is beyond the redeeming grace of Christ. Each of us, therefore, are called to repent of our sin, to turn away, to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to walk by faith in the only Redeemer of God's elect. It is not that God expects us to clean ourselves up before He saves us. On the contrary, He calls sinners. He calls sinners who He regenerates. He redeems. He makes new creatures in Him. He gives to them His Spirit working in us, sanctifying us. Isn't this marvelous? Salvation is an act of God's free grace in Christ. Judah, by God's grace, will win the crown. And he will become the spokesman for his brothers. He will take the leadership position among the family. And through him will come the royal kingly line. Judah will have a supreme position. A man who is of deeply flawed character, though, is transformed by God's amazing grace. Judah is transformed from a serial adulterer and a cheat and a liar to the great leader and head of the kingly seed of God. This is God's grace. Judah's name ends up on the gate in heavenly Jerusalem. It's incredible. God's grace is incredible. And that same grace which is applied to Judah, transforming him, applies 
to you and to me. As the Apostle Paul said of himself in 1 Corinthians 15, we are what we are by the grace of God. You are, beloved, a blood-bought child of the King by God's grace. In fact, without that grace, you and I would be living lives as the world lives. We would be living like Judah lived among the Canaanites. We would be seeking satisfaction in what this world has to bring us. And ultimately, that is no satisfaction at all. We would be trying to find meaning in the world with, with which without God has no meaning. We would be alienated from God. We would be far away from Him. We would be lost but for the grace of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for His abundant grace. Let's pray together. Father in Heaven, we rejoice in the grace You have shown us through Jesus Christ. And we thank You that this grace is seen even in the Old Testament. Even as the Messiah was yet to come. And you were, yet you were so gracious to your people. And you are still so gracious to your people that you have called us out of darkness into your light. We thank you, O oh God, for your redeeming grace. We thank you that as we studied here that the life of Judah, a great sinner who you transformed. Father, help us to walk by faith in you every day. Help us to remember how awesome your grace is. We ask all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.